Hi, everyone. It's so good to see your faces. I know there's some people that won't be on camera, but thank you so much for having me. And I want to thank the whole group, um, Sharon, Willem, and I just got to meet uh, the team at, at OMC who's been holding uh, these meetings every week. And I just want to say I'm really honoring of this group. Uh, the fact that there's been so much consistent meeting and practice over this last year just feels really moving, especially such an international group. So I was thrilled to get to come and, and speak with you all and, and also be in practice together. And I was thinking about this, this session that, you know, for many of us, I think it's been about a year. Uh, there are some anniversaries approaching around times that lockdowns have been happening. And I'm, I'm coming to you from uh, Berkeley in California, but I'm originally from Toronto. And so there's just different lockdowns happening at all different times. And there's been both the cost of that and then also just the creative resilience that's come from that in, in meetings like this and groups coming together. So just feel really honoring of especially those of you that have been here coming weekly for a long time. And if you're new, um, welcome. And as Pilar just said, so my work is really looking at the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and trauma. And I wanna to talk to you today and practice with you around something known as trauma-sensitive mindfulness. And many of you will have heard of trauma-sensitive practice. You know, there's trauma-sensitive classrooms and trauma-sensitive healthcare settings. But, you know, I basically think of trauma-sensitive practice, meaning that we're sensitive to the needs, the particular needs of people and communities who are struggling with trauma in a particular context. And so where my research is really focused for the last about 15 years now is around meditation and contemplative practice. And basically I'm gonna be proposing a couple different things here in this session and my work more generally. And the first point, and Pilar um, referenced this, is that mindfulness and meditation can be both helpful or it can hinder people who are struggling with trauma. It's something of a double-edged sword. And the second point is that the more that we can understand this dynamic, the nuances of this dynamic, the psychobiological aspects of this dynamic, the more powerful that we'll become, whether it's just in our personal practice or if we're leading others. So I'm a big advocate, especially given COVID and the pressures that so many of us are facing, to be able to understand how mindfulness and trauma intersect, where it's helpful and where it's not so helpful. And I come at this from a bunch of different angles. So I think of it like, you could imagine some circle charts, like mindfulness, meditation, trauma, the body, and then also the social context that we're functioning in all the time. And I'm just really interested in how those all go together. And the one of the interesting benefits of COVID, if I can say that, is that when I started to do talks about this work, yeah, you know, I say like five, six years ago, it was often it felt very um, like I was into a headwind. And I was I was having to work pretty hard to make relevance around the impact of adversity and trauma inside of say meditation practice. And then given the social conditions right now, as over the last year with the global pandemic, in many ways, the relevance is, is pretty set um, to talk about the importance of trauma. So it's all to say, I'm honored to be here with you all. Um, and I wanna do well. You know, I think we all wanna do well by this moment in our practices, in our lives, in our relationships and in our work. 
So I'm, we'll be here for about 40, 40 minutes, uh, 45 minutes. And it's going to be a mixture of, I'm going to share some things uh, that I've learned and, and kind of try to lay out some scaffolding that you can hang your coats on and try to really build. I want this to be relevant to you um, inside your practice. We'll be practicing together. I think that's one of the best ways to just be in and really get to embody the work. So I'll offer you some practices. And then we're going to have the chance for some questions. Uh, so if you have comments or questions that come up during the session, um, I invite you to chat them into the chat box. I won't be monitoring it um, because I want to stay connected here with you all, but we'll try to have a little bit of time at the end if there was any questions um, and clarifications before we um, duck off. Um, I just want to say too, this is also fundamentally about supporting your own resilience. Um, so my goal is that you come away from this session with more awareness, especially if this is a newer topic for you around trauma and meditation, but I also want you to feel resourced and that, that was a, this was a really good use of your time. Um, just one disclaimer as we begin here is that even, I, I won't be getting into a lot of details about um, traumatic experiences or a lot of content. And having said that, um, even a, you know, a somewhat cognitive conversation about trauma can be evocative uh, given the pressures that we're facing. I imagine many of you are frontline workers or some of you are. So please be self-responsive. If at any point during the session, you feel like you need to break, you need to rest, grab some water, please, please do that and you can come back. So let me, um, let me just start by defining trauma because I want to just offer us a little bit of ground here before we get in, into practice. So I define trauma, I'm trained as a psychologist um, in Canada and was really shaped around trauma. And the definition of trauma that I use, you know what, I'll put this in the chat just so you can have a, um, something that you can hang your hats on here. The definition of trauma that I use is, everyone in meeting. There we go. Um, the response to uh, shocking and emotionally overwhelming situations uh, that may involve actual or threatened death, serious injury or threat to physical integrity. This is really aligned with the diagnostic and statistical manual um, where people go for a lot of definitions um, around different mental health disorders. And as a reminder around trauma, these can be acute one-time events and they can also be over time. We could have developmental trauma when we're in our youth. Um, there could be traumas that impact us over time in many different ways. And as a reminder, we can also experience trauma in a couple different ways. Let me put this into the chat box too. So I'm saying this just as a reminder for all of us. We can experience trauma directly by experiencing a traumatic event. We can also witness a traumatic event. We can learn that trauma happened to someone close to us. Or trauma can also happen through repeated exposure. And you know, I have a cousin who's a, a paramedic in Canada. And so we've been talking about that more, just the impact of being around trauma so often. Now, of course, not everyone who lives through a traumatic event will necessarily experience ongoing symptoms of a trauma, but others will. Yeah, we live through something overwhelming, difficult, traumatic. And that results in a series of symptoms that can carry on past the trauma. And typical terms here are post-traumatic stress or PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Again, symptoms that are happening after a trauma. And I'm saying this all as a frame 
to just acknowledge that there's a very wide spectrum when it comes to trauma. So the vast majority of us in our lives will live through a traumatic event. So international research says 92%. It's hard to not imagine that it would be 100% that we're exposed to trauma, we experience trauma. And then when we come to PTSD, research says about three and a half percent at any given moment will be experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. So there's a very wide spectrum that's happening in any given moment inside of different social context. And what I tend to say to audiences that I'm working with, often a lot of meditation teachers, is that based on that spectrum, you can safely assume that when you're offering mindfulness into a room of people, there will likely be someone there who's struggling with trauma. And as I said earlier, my belief is the more that the teacher or the more that any of us know how trauma can intersect with mindfulness and meditation, the more powerful we can be. That I want all, all of us to have a sense of how we could work skillfully with trauma in meditation practice. I wanna be really clear about two things up front and then I'm gonna share a story and then we'll do a practice. One is that I want you to know this is not trying to reinvent the wheel with meditation and replace meditation with just trauma therapy interventions. I'm not coming in as a trauma therapist saying, ah, we should just be doing trauma therapy. Meditation is so powerful and uniquely helpful for people struggling with trauma. And there are some trauma interventions that are very useful. Second, I wanna be very clear, this isn't about coddling people or walking on eggshells or having a practice of avoidance. Sometimes people can hear trauma sensitive work and they think, oh boy, anytime that people get uncomfortable, we're just gonna have them do something different than meditation. That's not the case. In fact, I would want people who are struggling with trauma to be able to access the benefits of practice. And sometimes they'll need specific modifications. Pilar, you pulled that quote out from earlier. They'll need specific modifications to be able to access the benefits of practice. And that's what I wanna be unpacking with you today. What are those practices? What would you need to know? And we'll go from there. So let me, um, let me offer a story to illuminate what I think of as trauma-sensitive mindfulness, and then we'll do a practice around this. And then we'll go to some actual like modifications um, that you can apply. And I offer this story in the context of two, I'd say two areas or two buckets you could think of with trauma-sensitive mindfulness. On the one hand, there's a bucket of, of multiple lists of best practices. So especially if you're leading people, it's really helpful to know how would I work with self-compassion? What do I do with shame? How do I work with body scans? There's just a list of 200 things that it's great for you to know. In the other kind of domain, it's about embodiment. I'd say it's a lot about a general orientation that we take on in our practice that is trauma sensitive. It's really easy to get into the weeds right away. Like, well, what do we mean by how we do this with body scans? And, and I'm up, you know, that conversation's important, but you know, I wanna start here with this session kind of back, backing up a little bit and going, what, what does trauma sensitive practice feel like inside of meditation? 
And the story I want to tell you really briefly is an example where I was in a group and I thought this feels like trauma sensitive practice. So I was in a sitting group in Berkeley, uh, pre COVID and small group in a residential home with a teacher who I knew who had done some trauma sensitive training in mindfulness. And the person, the teacher asked the group after the meditation, we did a you know, 20 minute meditation. And the teacher said, well, how, how was that? Can I just hear from some people? And there was a newer student in the class who put up their hand and quite bravely said, I hated that. I, I, I just wanted to run from this room and get as far away from this practice as I could. And the room kind of got a little bit quiet and everyone kind of looked over at the teacher like, wow, how's this gonna go? And I watched the teacher and the teacher kind of took a breath and then said, that's awesome that you noticed that. Do you know how far away you'd want to run? And, and everyone kind of paused and looked at the person like, wow, that's not the question I was expecting. And the person who had said that said, yeah, there's a hill at the top, basically outside the house at the end of the block. And they said, I'd love to just get to the top. That's where I wanted to go. That's where I, was, I just wanted to get away from here. And the teacher said, well, um, would you actually, do you want to go there? Um, that's fine. We have the space for it. Maybe you could just bring a buddy from the group. And the student kind of looked around and said, well, okay, I'll try that. So they left. They were gone for maybe, I don't know, five, 10 minutes. They came back and I'll never forget the expression on the person's face who had, who had left. They just looked so happy and they looked really alive. Their face was quite pretty flushed. They came back in, sat down and the teacher asked, well, can you tell me what happened? And the person said, yeah, you know, what I did is I actually just did some wind sprints running up and down the hill a couple of times. And I feel so much better and I feel ready to meditate. Like I want to sit now. I feel ready to sit. And the person said, I want to thank you for actually trusting that I know what I, I knew what I needed. And so I watched that and it was this moment to me. I thought that captures some kind of essence of trauma sensitive practice in that there's a deep respect, like a fundamental respect and curiosity for one's nervous system and one's psychobiology. That if there's an approach to say, um, let me get curious here, as opposed to let me, let me take this personal, like, oh, I guess my voice, I guess I didn't lead the meditation well or something happened. The person just got very curious with this person. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, whenever that happens in a meditation group, that's always the move. You know, a teacher might say, I have liability. I can't have students running off on the street. But that's, that's the principle that I want to just put on the table with you all to say that quality of curiosity, care, and respect for um, what someone needs in a moment, especially when there's a level of activation like that, that's really getting at trauma-sensitive practice. So I'd like to offer you a practice around that, that you can try for yourself, that I think kind of encapsulates um, this respect of, of people's nervous systems. So it's an optional practice. It'll be about three, three minutes, three, four minutes. And uh, you can have your eyes open or closed, but if you have access to sight, you're going to want to see me so I can explain it. And I'm going to have my hands, it's going to involve working with your hands. And it's a kind of like an an experimental embodied practice. Now, you can work with your feet 
if you don't have access to your hands and your arthritis, or you can also just visualize this, okay? So there's two parts to this practice. And again, this is a practice around trauma sensitivity. So for the first part of the practice, again, I'll have my hands here, but you can have them down in your lap if you want. I'd like you to, or the invitation is to make a fist with one of the hands. And I'd like you to imagine that the job of this fist is to stay closed. And in staying closed, this fist is taking care of your safety and your survival. Yeah, so really important job. So that's closed. And then with the other hand, as an experiment, the invitation is to try to open the fist. Yeah, so just give yourself that experiment. Just notice what happens and you try to pry open the fist. What happens to your breath? Happens to your mood? What happens to the fist? Cool, and then you can just let that go. You can shake it out if you want. And I just invite you to take a breath. Just notice the impact of that on you. And then we'll do part two of two of the practice. Same thing. So hand closed, taking care of your safety and your survival. Then the invitation is to, with the other hand, bring some, a quality of presence, care, compassion, and respect into this other hand. And then in your own time, the invitation is to place the hand underneath the fist. And as you do that, the invitation is to basically communicate something like uh, good job. And of course you're closed. Like there's something deeply intelligent about that. You're also communicating that there's no agenda here. I'm not trying to open you. I'm just here. I'm listening respectfully. And for this last part, you could even try to support the fist to close. Like, no, I can, I'm here, I can do this for you. And just notice the impact. Maybe there's a change, maybe not. And then in your own time, you can let that go. And then same thing, just giving yourself a couple seconds here maybe a couple deeper breaths, just noticing, okay, was that same, different? Noticing the impact. And I just wanna invite you, if you're interested to share any part of that in the chat, um, that'd be great. Would love to hear from a couple people about how that was for you, what you noticed, was it different? Lars, Aikido, yes, um, I'll just jump in. That is, as an, I'm a Aikido practitioner, um, for some might know Aikido, it's Japanese martial art. That was actually based on a trauma therapist um, named Stacy Haynes, who had also done some work around Hakomi. That's where that came from. Lucy said, I feel grateful. Moving, Rachel, thank you. For folks, if you're reading the chat, you might need to scroll up and down in the chat if, if it's racing, because you can't see it so fast. Um, Jane, your fist relaxed in the second part. Kirsten, I noticed I was holding my breath the first time. Adya, it's beautiful. Very different breath change too. Yeah. 
This is great. Thanks, everyone. It's really powerful. Appreciate your participation here. No resistance in the second case aside during the second part. Yes, some of you might have felt that. If you had a different experience, some people that might produce a sense of fear, like, whoa, my fist is opening. So whatever happened for you, that's great. Really appreciate the comments here. But I wanted to offer that as we get now into the, I'm going to get into some more of the the weeds, <laughs> kind of the first bucket. I wanted to offer that as a general orientation to trauma-sensitive practice. You know, I, I do longer trainings with people and it, everything, almost everything circles back to a fundamental respect for, you could say people's survival strategies. You know, when we're working with trauma, we're working with a level of activation and stress that really elicits a survival-based response in the body. It, it, is, it is our lines of defense that we have. And unless we have some kind of fundamental respect for these factory-loaded survival responses we have, the body will tend to double down and lock down, be like, I'm not opening, are you kidding? The body tends to open with a yes over time. And so whether it's our practice or whether we're working with others, that quality of care like this really works. I'll just say, I can't tell you the number of people I've interviewed now, probably thousands of people over the last 15 years on this topic. And a key moment is when they person, a person goes to a coach, a meditation teacher, a yoga teacher, and they say, I'm having a hard time. How does the teacher respond? Is it like, yeah, let's talk about it. That's normal. Or is it like, well, that's weird. And that moment, like, does it produce shame or does it, or does it invite someone into curiosity of their own practice is a really big deal. So um, thank you for participating in that practice. And I want to shift here for the last, say this last 20, 23 minutes. I want to talk to you about some tools and then we'll do a, a couple practices together. Um, you know, the main thing I've, I've learned of, of all the traumatized people that I've worked with and including my own trauma work is that when people are in coming to meditation, they're saying, you know, really what's most useful is tools. Like give me something practical that I can apply that I can work with. Some of you might know Sharon Salzberg um, who does a lot of work around loving kindness. Awesome. Um, Buddhist teacher. She's been doing, Sharon's been doing work. Uh, with families of survivors of gun violence here in the U.S., particularly mass shootings. And they've done two retreats, actually. Um, one was held in Massachusetts for survivors and families of people um, that had been victims of gun violence. And she said inside of the retreats, people kept saying, let's just work with tools. Trauma is here. What are the tools I can put in my toolkit that enable me to hang with practice? So that's what I want to talk about here is what are the tools that people need? And um, let me begin with uh, kind of a didactic thing, and I'm going to put this into the chat for you all. The first idea here is that it's useful to know how to hit the brakes inside of practice. And saying that another way, more technically, it's really helpful to know how to modulate the intensity of your meditation practice. And there's a number of ways we can do this. Why I say hit the brakes is, you know, when you're teaching someone to drive a car, or you're driving, it's like the first thing you want them to know is where the brakes are. Do we know where the brakes are? Similarly in meditation, if you're someone who's experienced trauma, you're likely re-experiencing the trauma through things like flashbacks, 
intrusive thoughts or sensations. And meditation can be very intense for any of us that are experiencing trauma. We close our eyes, we go into our inner world, we'll eventually bump into what I call traumatic stimuli. Now that's not necessarily a bad thing. Actually, meditation can be really helpful to navigate trauma, but sometimes that can be too much. So it's useful to know, okay, how would I actually tap the brakes? How would I know how to slow down in practice? And here is a couple of examples. And these are, I'd you know, these are pretty obvious. I just put them in the chat. So these are pretty straightforward, but Many of you will know this issue of compliance. This is a well-studied psychological principle that people who are practicing, we will tend to follow the guidance and the instruction of the people who are leading us and we'll wanna please them. And so I meet a lot of people who say, well, I didn't know I could open my eyes. Like no one told me I could do that. So just knowing these things can be helpful. So let me just run through them quickly. Um, one is letting people know they can open their eyes inside of practice. Second, that they can shift posture. Yeah. Third is that they can take breaks, just letting them know, hey, we're 10 minutes in, you feel overwhelmed. It's okay to shift here. You can take a couple minutes, come back to practice. Working with the breath can be very helpful. I'll talk about that in a moment. And also reducing time of meditations. Um, there's some research at a Brown University that suggests that longer term frequency intensity of practice can actually exacerbate trauma symptoms. So sometimes reducing the time of meditations um, can be very helpful. Now, I wanna be clear, again, I'm not saying that when people end up experiencing challenging emotions or sensations that they should immediately back off and do something different. On the contrary, I'd encourage us all to stay in with practice and there will be a moment of overwhelm that we might hit where more will not necessarily be better when it comes to mindfulness meditation and practice. So. Those are a couple of really simple examples. You find you're hitting kind of a red zone of overwhelm. Here are some different ways that you can take breaks. Let me say something more about the breath. Well, actually, let me show you a couple of postures that's really common in trauma work. And I'll invite you to do them with me here together. Um, I'll talk for a moment about the breath, but also about um, making physical contact with the self. For some people, a form of physical contact can be really regulating really supportive. And I wanna give you a couple different examples so you can feel this for yourself. Again, as a tool that you could use inside of practice. So uh, I invite you to find a posture that feels comfortable for you. It could be lying down, standing, or if you're seated, we'll try a couple different ones here. So first just give yourself, let's give yourself a baseline here. So you can do your eyes open or closed. I can guide you through this so you don't need to see me. And just taking a couple of deeper breaths here. And just letting this be a pause, chance to check in with yourself and see if you could notice your mood. What's the emotional state of affairs right now? It could also be your level of energy right now. Whatever will help you connect to yourself in the present moment. Just see what the kind of like the baseline is here. And then I'll offer you a couple of 
practices where you make contact with the body. These are all optional and you can just see as an experiment how they impact you. The first is hand on the heart. It's a really common one inside of a self-compassion practice. You could have both hands, you know, one over the other, or you could just have one. You could experiment with what hand feels best. Maybe it's the non-dominant hand or Yeah, just making that contact, noticing the pressure and the placement, if that's the right pressure and placement for you right now. And one experiment is to feel the contact and then feel yourself offering the contact, both the giver and the receiver. And seeing if there's a quality by which you're making this contact, maybe it's just presence. Like I'm here right now. Maybe it's more neutral or maybe it comes with some caring passion. Okay, you're making space for this practice right now. Or I see the challenges you're facing. Some different modifications here could be also one hand on the belly and the heart. I'm just noticing for you what feels best. Now you can hang here for a moment, but let me offer you a second one that's really common in trauma work, which involves placing a hand at the, at the back of the neck. And this is a place where we're making contact with the, like literally physical contact with the bottom of the brainstem. And for some of us, you know, a little bit of pressure can feel good or just the presence. For some, I'll show you if you want to look. Uh, sometimes people like to put a hand on the forehead as well for some containment. And then just notice how that impacts you. Maybe you want to go back to the heart or you like this one. Just some care and presence. Noticing how that impacts the breath. And then for the final part of this practice, I'm gonna offer you a dealer's choice. Wherever you feel like contact would feel best for you. Maybe you wanna hang here with the head and the neck. Maybe it's hands on the heart or you could let the practice go entirely for this last moment, but I just wanna leave you in choice where contact would feel best. Sometimes it's even the hands just gently in the lap. And again, letting this be a practice of feeling yourself, maybe offering presence to yourself, some contact, and then also receiving it. In the next few breaths, we will shift here. So just taking a couple more breaths here, knowing you can also return here anytime you like.
So um, again, I'm going to keep offering really simple practices here that can be in people's toolkit inside of practice. So I'm tending to offer these to people. I'm not able to, I won't get into the whole um, uh, physiological frame around like noticing trauma. We can't get into that depth tonight. But what I'm training people, it's noticing when they're out of what's called their window of tolerance and starting to actually um, utilize self-regulation practices like we just did to help them come back in their window and gain the benefits of practice. So again, these are all tools that you can use in your practice at different times. Um, I said I'd talk about the breath for a moment. There's so many ways to talk about the breath. And what I wanna offer here is, I wanna talk about anchors for a second. Um, and we'll also do a practice around this. So an anchor of attention, as many of you will know, is uh, a place inside of any kind of contemplative practice, but often in Vipassana or mindfulness practice, where we are anchoring our attention to cultivate some mental stability. It's a place that we can fix our attention. And then whenever we get lost or in thought or become distracted, it's a place to return our attention. So it's very useful and important part of practice. Now, for many of you, myself, this is what happened for me, the breath was the common anchor point um, inside of practice. So when I'd go on a day long or multiple day retreats, I was with the breath for long periods of time. When it comes to trauma, the breath will not always be a neutral place to cultivate mindful attention. We want with anchors to ideally have a place that is somewhat neutral so that when we return to it, there's not an emotional activation. It's a place that we can actually in a calm, steady, grounded way, as I've learned it, to cultivate kind of that build that muscle of concentration, of attention and allowing us to be mindful. But with trauma, without getting into too many technical details, our respiratory system is intimately tied to our sympathetic nervous system, which is kind of like the accelerator of, of the body. And our sympathetic nervous system is wound up in fight flight, which is uh, you know, key when it comes to trauma. So whenever we're asking someone who's struggling with trauma to pay close and sustained attention to their breath, there's a possibility that we're actually inviting them directly into contact with traumatic stimuli. Now, as I said earlier, that's not always a bad thing. Sometimes actually that can be very useful for metabolizing an overwhelming experience. But for some people, they might not be prepared for that. Suddenly they're in with the breath, things start to get out of control. They don't know they can open their eyes. Things, things get kind of difficult for them in practice. So with that said, a really common and key trauma-sensitive practice inside of mindfulness is to have multiple anchors of attention that you can work with. So I invite you to even reflect just for yourself for a moment. Like what are your go-to anchors inside of your practice? Do you have favorite ones? Do you have a repertoire? Do you have one that you work with? Just noticing for yourself. And what I'd like to offer you here uh, is uh, a couple different anchors that you can work with. Yeah, so I'll guide you through a practice, um, especially if this is newer for you, that you can actually um, utilize and bring in, especially if the breath isn't neutral. We're gonna work with the breath. We're gonna work with sensations that are not connected to the breath. And then we're gonna work with sound or hearing. And um, 
you know, even if you're someone who knows all these three, I invite you to try these out almost like with a beginner's mind here to remember, oh yeah, which is easier and harder for me? And if I was to guide someone here, how would I do it? So um, once again, I invite you to find a, a posture where you could be for the next, I want to say four minutes. And if you'd like, you could start with just a couple of deeper breaths. Again, this is simply a trauma-sensitive mindfulness practice. It's going to involve working with a couple of different anchors, leaving you in choice about which one feels most supportive. So to begin with, see if you can find a constellation of sensations that are not connected to the breath. That could be an anchor for you. For some, that might be the sensations of the feet touching the ground. Maybe that's the buttocks and the chair, or the hands in the lap. Just choosing any sensations that work for you. And then letting this be your momentary anchor. A place to rest the attention. And whenever the mind wanders into thought and you become distracted, just gently returning here to this anchor. And also seeing if you can notice the quality of connection you have with this anchor. Meaning, is it easier or more difficult to rest your attention here? And then in the next few breaths, when you're ready, go ahead and shift your attention to sound or hearing. Tuning into the soundscape around you, if that's available. Seeing if you can receive the sounds and letting the experience of hearing be an anchor. Not necessarily going out to identify sounds, but receiving them. Resting your attention here. a place to return. Noticing if this was easier or more difficult than the first anchor, maybe the same. And then when you're ready, Shifting to a third anchor, which will be the breath. This could be the rising and falling of the abdomen or chest. Or the sensations at the nostrils. And 
anchoring to the rising and falling of the breath. If you can be with the breath, with the beginner's mind, discovering it over and over. And then for the final part of this practice, noticing which anchor you'd like to end with. Maybe it's a completely different anchor. But imagining if we were to practice for another five to 10 minutes, where would you choose to anchor your attention? Or what would you like to end with here? And the next few breaths will shift them this practice. So maybe taking a couple of deeper breaths. If you like, beginning to invite some movement or open the eyes, whatever will support this shift. Okay. Thanks, everyone. Well, I have about three more hours of material that I'd like to cover right now with you all <laughs> because we're just scratching the surface. And then I'm also curious what I haven't been watching the chat. So, I mean, I saw it for that one, um, one moment. So I'd like to just check in, Pilar, with you and see based on where we are, where should we go? Are there any comments or questions we wanna lift up here? Or do we wanna finish with one more practice? What do you think? So there is one comment, one question um, from Jen Tallow. And they ask, what would you suggest for people who aren't comfortable with touch, maybe haven't been raised with much affection? Yeah, it's a great point. Um, well, one is to remind people that it's always optional because for some, as you said, the idea of making physical contact, even with oneself can sometimes feel foreign or it's actually stretched, doesn't feel comfortable. Um, and it's not relaxing and regulating at all. So one is to ensure, I always make sure that if I'm bringing that in, that I'm not, I'm not suggesting it like the idea, like this is going to be so great. <laughs> like everyone loves make, touching their heart, you know, uh, I try to make sure there's that kind of like, check it out, see if it works for you. Um, visualization um, can also be a very useful one, but honestly, I'd suggest like if that doesn't feel supportive, regulating, grounding for you, then just actually go back to a different practice and find the anchor that works for you. I'll also mention, um, this is a chance for me to say it, that you know, whenever we're in a meditation environment, 
trauma-sensitive practice, we're asking permission before making contact with people. So, um, you know, there wouldn't be any kind of unsolicited um, touch. Um, and sometimes we're in communities where people are just hugging each other. I know this will have changed with COVID. Um, but yeah, I appreciate that, that context that you're naming and encourage you to just be in choice around it. Thanks, Pilar. It's a great one. So there are a bunch of questions coming in. Um, okay. I'm also aware of the time and also some quite a few requests for more practice. <laughs> oh, yeah? Yes, and just to hear more in general. Um, maybe just one to highlight. Um, people are asking for the name of your book and whether it's for people who have experienced trauma or for teachers. Say that last part again. So if it's for people who've experienced trauma or for teachers or both. Yeah, that's great. Uh, it's more for teachers. It's more for those leading practice. Um, it's called trauma-sensitive mindfulness. You're welcome to get it. I just want you to know there's also, we did a free webinar um, that's, well, we'll be talking about if you want to go, if you want to do more work, but there's also a free webinar on my website that if you want to take kind of like the next level of the neuroscience around it and best practices, that can be a a step there if, if the book is pretty technical, but yeah, books mainly for teachers. Um, but I've a number of people that just in their own practice, they've said it was useful just to understand the particular intersection. So um, yeah, that's, that answer the question? I think yeah. so, thank you. And, um, oh, there's um, Nina saying that you can invite people to suddenly hold a, cush a cushion on the belly instead of touching the heart. Ah, that's awesome. See, that's why I do these things because I mean, <laughs> that's great. That's great, cushion. And then some really great questions around how to work with dissociated states, OCD, yes. how oh, it wow. relates to somatic experiencing. Yeah, very rich material. <laughs> This is the thing. It's like you put your toe in. I mean, we can go deep so quick. Um, it gets so technical so quick. I love these questions. This is where, can we hang out for another couple hours? I guess we can't right now, but okay. Let me, can I just really quick on the dissociation piece because it goes there. So as many of you might know, you know, when we're, if we experience trauma, we're experiencing often something known as hyper or hypo arousal and dissociation is common with hypo arousal, meaning we're feeling frozen, numb and shut down. What's so interesting and yet confusing and challenging is how would you know the difference between a deeply concentrated state and dissociation? Because here we are in some contemplative practice where actually having out-of-body experiences or being like, wow, I can't feel the body, that might be appraised as very positive inside of a particular tradition. So it's very tricky to notice how would we know the difference between like I've met people who said, whoa, I was just dissociating for three years in practice and I didn't even realize it. So this is worth deeper exploration, but I'd say to keep connected with a teacher or a trusted other around your practice. If you're starting to say, I think I'm dissociating, it might be connected to trauma. It's just always worth having a person that can actually assess that with you in the moment. Cause it's pretty tricky with dissociation to know how to work with it. And it's a protective response when it comes to trauma. So, and OCD is definitely, that's not my wheelhouse, but that's a big, we could talk about that as well. So, so yeah, there's a lot of, there's a lot to talk about. And Pilar, I know I said I was going to hand it back to you um, with five minutes remaining. So that's okay. This is really interesting stuff. Thank you so much, David. And, you know, I'm, I'm really left with the phrase that you mentioned, I think kind of towards the beginning um, 
which is that this is all about a fundamental respect for people's survival strategies. And I just think that is, yeah, such a beautiful summary and maybe what we can take with us.